So I'm really, really excited about uh, today's guest on the Recovering Hypocrite podcast. It's my friend, Joel. So yes, this is Nolan Joel, Joel Mudamali. And Joel is, uh, he's the director of theology for Proverbs 31 Ministries. And there's probably a whole podcast in that someday. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. But, but um, people, we're not going to... Like- People are like, Noel, do you mean his name is Joel uh, or Jolene? Because this doesn't make sense right now. And his voice seems real deep for, uh, yeah, and, for a women's and, ministry. You Are you telling me that we've got a guy named Jolene who's an Indian dude in the Carolinas? <laughs> are, is all of this true? That's right. That's right. But it's true. It's a true story. So Joel and I go way back. I don't even know how many years we go back, but uh, Joel, uh, in addition to all that he's doing uh, with Proverbs 31, he preaches at his church, uh, which you may have heard of, Transformation Church with Derwin Gray uh, over there in the Carolinas. He does spiritual formation stuff there too. He and his wife have a podcast called The Almost Indian Family. Um, and when I was thinking about the, Joel, I just literally thought of you with this topic. So what, what happened was, um, uh, as you know, my wife is Korean and, and I was talking to somebody about the fact that I was in this, uh, in, in an interracial marriage <laughs> and they said, oh, you're not in an interracial marriage. Your wife's Asian. And, <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, that it was like this. I felt like I had to defend my interracialness uh, <laughs> or something. And and I know that, so your wife is Caucasian and That's you're right. Indian. And so yep. you guys, I got thinking about just how the the conversation in race that's happening in our culture right now, which is just desperately needed in the church and desperately yeah. needed in our country, um, that it feels like um, there are elements of it that are just, fantastic and some of it they're just graceless like graceless words graceless attitudes and postures and i thought it might be unique to talk to you because you have so many like you've got your podcast um you've been involved with um uh, conferences about this you're in a church Mm -hmm. where the uh the the lead pastor is african-american and Mm -hmm. and you're an indian and you're up there preaching at the church and it's a pretty multi-ethnic church so you've been around yeah. a lot of this and you're in an interracial marriage and you're in a non you're a non-black minority and i hate to say it that way but let's just no, it's true. call it what it is in this conversation um some of my asian friends have said they feel like the invisible minority right now mm-hmm. um and i just thought it'd be fun to talk about uh, or maybe it won't be fun but it will at least be profitable <laughs> yeah to have yeah. a conversation about the graceless race conversations that go on in the world around us. So thanks for yeah. coming on to do this. Man, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit second guessing why I said yes to this, but no, I'm, I'm joking. This and, and the one aspect of it that um, is very deeply, uh, intimately um, important to me is that I'm actually a PhD student right now at Midwestern um, Baptist Theological Seminary. And my, my the topic of my dissertation is going to be in the area of a Trinitarian ethic for unity and diversity. So it's very much going to deal with um, racial issues, ethnic issues, um, ecclesiology, the church. Um, and so I have found myself smack in the middle of these conversations um, in probably every facet. So a similar story to yours really quick. And then I know you've got some some places that you probably want to navigate us to. But my wife, so we've got three little boys. They're all, um, you know, half Indian. 
Um, the boys can get confused sometimes or their friends can get confused depending on if it's summertime or wintertime because they get darker in the summertime, lighter in the wintertime. Um, are they black? Are they white? When their hair is cut really short, they look more like their black friends. When their hair gets cut out longer, they look more like their Latino friends. That is a, a whole thing in, in of itself. So my wife goes uh, to my middle son uh, Levi's um, uh, field trip. And it's probably the first time that, you know, it's summertime. So he's, he gets real tan. Like if you could see me, I'm pretty brown right now. And he gets, he gets real brown. My, my mom calls him her Indian baby. I don't know what that means as if the other boys are not Indian, but we're not going to get into that dynamic. Um, and so my wife gets there and this little girl just looks at, uh, at my wife and goes, who are you? And Levi goes, <laughs> Le <laughs> Levi goes, Hey, Maddie, that's my mama. <laughs> and uh, and Maddie looks at Levi and looks at my very white wife and looks back at Levi and looks at Levi and goes, but she's white. <laughs> and Britt's face is turning red and she's kind of, you know, and Levi's like, and, Le and Levi just, he's like, oh yeah, my mom's, my dad's brown, my dad's Indian, my mom's white, so we're half and half and that's just how life is. And then he just went on and, and played. But um, so it's just an, an interesting reality that you may have conversations with adults all the way down to children, but it absolutely is right in front of us. And at some level, in some category, we've got to be able to have meaningful, and I loved your word, profitable conversations um, to move us towards a direction. Because if we don't talk about it at all, we're still moving in a direction. It's just not towards anything profitable. Well, and the thing that's interesting is, is with, with little kids, little kids are just going to say what they think and they say what they feel and they say what they see and all that kind of stuff. And so um, so the, the conversations with little kids uh, are a, a blast and awkward, but it also makes like my kids, uh, you know, they're half Korean and they look different levels of Korean um, and different levels of Caucasian. And so they, yeah. would, depending on the kid and, and the school they were in, they would get called Chinese and people would ask them questions about, uh, did they come from China and just right. things like that. Um, and so it's with little kids, the kids learn how to navigate that. But as people get older, um, and those same conversations happen, uh, there now is, tends to be an undercurrent of, 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 shame, an undercurrent of gracelessness, an undercurrent of all kinds of other uh, subtle racial tensions all the way to racism. I mean, so like in, in Michigan, where I live, there are a ton of adopted Koreans. It's just a thing, especially on the west side of the state. And so early on, when Grace and I were married, we would go to grocery stores, or I would go to a grocery store with the kids. And if I was alone with the kids people would ask me if I had adopted them. And then if uh, Grace uh, was with me, we would get stared at. Now, that was, you know, 20 years ago. And now that is much less the case. There is, I've noticed, um, much more, at least in our area, a, a, a there's much more racial diversity and there's m a lot more, more multi-ethnic families. So it's not as unusual anymore. But, uh, but yeah, we would get, I, all the time I would get asked, are they, did you adopt these, are these, did you adopt these kids? I mean, it's like, why is that? I mean, I get it because of our state, but it, it was graceless. Yeah. And I think one of the questions is where, where <laughs> at what point does it go from innocence to graceless, right? Um, cause I do think that with that little girl with Maddie, there was an essence of innocence that's there that she just observed something of God's creation, honestly, and there is not curiosity. 
and that and that curiosity leads uh, is going to lead somewhere. And so we have to ask the question, well, where is this curiosity going to lead? Is it going to lead? And this is where I think doctrine is so important. Is it going to lead us to the doctrine of the Mago Day that we were made in the likeness and image of God, both man and woman, to reflect the essence and the glory of God himself? Or do we um, are we led to, well, uh, and this is a debated topic, but was the image broken? Well, do some of us reflect more of the image of God and do some of us reflect less of the image of God? And if we go historically, this is where we can really dig into the the graceless nature. Historically, this idea of a broken image is what was used among slave traders to be able to say, well, African-Americans were less than white people because they reflect less of an image of God. And so now there is a superiority that is taking place. Um, and so I think where does this graceless nature come from? It's when we transition from innocence of looking at something as beautiful as creation, and we don't recognize that even a child who is uh, of multiple ethnicities, uh, they that child in essence reflects that image of God, and that's a beautiful thing. There's nothing lesser there. But when we start to think that something different is... Um, something that is broken or something that is not helpful or something that should be feared, man, we're going to go down a really challenging road of trying to unwork uh, years and years and years of, of evil, honestly. And that's what happened all the way back with the slave trade um, is these people who just viewed uh, people who look anything not like them as somebody who were different, somebody who were less than, which then justifies behavior like literally stealing people from Africa, bringing them over on ships where many of them died anyways, and enslaving them for years. So we asked the question, well, where, where does this graceless nature comes? It's a systemic issue that has started a long time ago. So so you, you right at the beginning of it, you said something that just kind of struck me. You're talking about that little girl on the playground and the fact that um, she observed something in God's creation that triggered some curiosity in her. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if as we get older, we already lose, you know, we lose our curiosity anyway. We tend to think that's a negative thing. Barnabas Piper wrote a great book on, on and curiosity. Mm-hmm. So just the idea of just that curiosity is a good thing. But but I think at some point, just so I'm going to speak as a white dude. Yeah. Um, I think that there is a fear sometimes to have a genuine curiosity and um, about God's creation and when it comes to race and wondering if we're going to say the right thing or trip ourselves up or screw up if we ask the question about something we just legitimately don't know. Because I've seen people do that with my wife and I in our marriage. They'll, they'll legitimately want to ask a question. And in my mind, it's a dumb question. But for them, it is a, it, it's a legitimate curiosity. Um, and, and I, you know, there becomes this little, oh, now we can't talk about it. So now some kind of shame settles in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wonder if that's part of how, how, uh, how this gets perpetuated. We, we lose a, a healthy way of expressing observation and curiosity. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I actually, so you hit on something I think that is super important. Um, we're part, uh, I, I'm a part of a, a team at our ministry that is really trying to tackle um, issues of race and diversity and ethnicity. We were part of, we went to that MLK 50 deal that happened um, uh, recently. And 
um, it was really interesting because when the conversation about race came up and ethnicity and about racial injustice, particularly of all the minorities that were in there, the, the question was asked, well, what's your first reaction? And, and I'm telling this is my first reaction. The first reaction is I'm tired. Like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of the conversation. I'm, I'm tired that we keep having the same conversations. It seems like over and over and over again. And I think it was Dr. Crawford Loritz on a panel at MLK 50 when the question was, well, how do we move on from here? His response was, why have we not after 60 or 50, whatever years, how, how have we not moved on from here? Why are we still having the same questions. And so so on the graceless nature, if I were to just be super transparent and honest, I think from the minority community, I think part of our gracelessness to our white brothers and sisters of the majority culture is because we're so tired, in a sense, of having to engage in a conversation that, in a sense, it brings back PTSD. Like, uh, you know, Noel, we've talked about this before. When I used to travel, I used to travel about 130, 40,000 air miles a year when I worked for Logos Bible Software. Man, I knew that if I had my beard long, that I was going to get stopped at TSA. I could tell. I got TSA pre-check. I'm a million miler with United. I mean, I could see from the, the glance at the person at the, at, the, um, uh, at the station, he looks up, there's some signal that's made, and I just know for a fact I'm going to get pull, pulled over for a random check. And it's just amazing because I go through as soon as they talk to me and I don't sound like I've got a thick Indian accent. They're like, oh, he's cool. And, and, and he can roll through. Now, if I shave my beard and I'm clean cut and, uh, and all of that, the chances of me getting, getting stopped, like, like that's PTSD now. So every time I have to go through a security, I, I just think like, oh crap, did I shave or not? What is, what does my face look, do, did I budget time to get through the, the like, <laughs> and, you know, and I'm Indian, so we're late for everything. So that's another really big issue, you know? Um, so that's going on. So that's, that's the one side, the gracelessness, I think that can happen from the minority context is because we are tired. Now, is that justified is now the question. And I think what the gospel calls us to is to lay down our, um, tiredness our frustration for the sake of the gospel and to bring unity because i do think that there is this genuine desire and to your point curiosity of our white majority brothers and sisters that are saying help me understand uh, and this is what, what where my thesis is going to go in this doctoral program program in the new testament paul as he plants churches he plants multi-ethnic churches with different people from different backgrounds socioeconomic multi-ethnic um different religions that have now converted to christianity it was an invitation into each other's lives that caused unity and that that philadelphia that brotherly love if we don't invite people into our lives and lay down uh, even justified frustration, well, we're going to act and live out of gracelessness. And then I'm going to go to the white side, and I want you to talk into this a little bit. I think what happens on the um, for our white brothers and sisters is in the curiosity, in the curiosity, there can be a lack of recognition that, uh, crap, my minority brothers and sisters, this is hard for them. So there's almost this curiosity that's so excited that it can come off um, as as graceless because it just seems like excitement to the minority brothers. Like, do you not understand the tragedy that has happened in my life? And the, and the, it's going to happen to my children's lives and in my ancestors' lives that has brought me to this point. And so um, I think that there's one side of the potential gracelessness. And then there's the other side, which is just adamant of, well, it's not an issue. It was an issue for back then. 
it's not an issue for us now. There's not racism now. Yeah, I think one of the number one things that I've heard, um, just so, you know, in my community, talking to folks in my church, whenever the topic of race comes up, is, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, and it's almost like it's a, that has already been dealt with. Didn't we handle that? That's been dealt with. So why are we talking about this again? Um, and that, from my my minority brothers have told me, that is a, that's triggers the PTSD. Right. Like, it's like, you're, you're saying that I don't experience this. Uh, like even just, uh, I use just the illustration of driving while black. Um, and what some of my friends had told me about that experience right here in the Lansing area. Um, and when I brought that up, just the line of white people that wanted to tell me, no, that's not an issue. No, that never happens. <laughs> and I'm like, I just, so, so, but then when, uh, for, for me, where I see that gracelessness is when you talk about like that excitement, okay, let's, let's handle this. Let's have the conversation. Let's get it done. It's always with this idea of all we got to do is have this one conversation and then it's done, right. man. Like, so that excitement is like, let's fix it. It's kind of like how most men treat uh, arguments with their wives, with their wives right? Yeah. It's like, okay, um, I, I'm, I'm going to fix it and we're going to have one conversation and we're going to come up and then it's never going to happen again. <laughs> and, and, and I think that um, my, my friends that I have talked to, especially amongst the African-American community, their response has been um, very similar to um, what a lot of wives' conversations with their husband. I need to be heard without you trying to fix this mm-hmm. <laughs> and without just kind of this posture of I am the one. It's, it's, it's the great white savior, the great husband savior idea that I'm going to be able to fix this in one conversation. Yeah. Um, and And so kind of being in the middle of that, um, and even just, so one of the things it's been interesting for me is, is I know some guys that I've talked to have basically said, uh, it seems like any time a white pastor wants to invite me to preach at his church, it's always on race. Yeah. Can't I just be a preacher right. too? So, um, and uh, by the way, as a tangent, I completely forgot that it was MLK weekend because I'm a white guy and I'm stupid. And I invited Tyler St. Clair, who's African-American church writer out of Detroit to come preach at our church and did not dawn on me until he showed up here and it was MLK weekend. And, uh, and I was like, people are going to think he's here to talk on this issue. And he was talking on a completely different topic. And I, then I, then all of a sudden I was like, oh, oh no, did I screw up that? Right. Like, should I, was I supposed to address that this weekend? And so I think the whole thing, it just, it just piles on uh, shame and misunderstanding and confusion. Remember? Yeah. And it's complex, right? Like there is a complexity to it and it goes, it, it takes me back to like, if we are not in relationship with people that, that are not within our same situation, circumstance, ethnicity, I mean, all of those things, like, we will become numb to the realities of what other people are feeling and facing um, or just plain ignorant about these things. And I think those that 
becoming numb or ignorant can lead to gracelessness in these conversations. Like we have to be impacted deeply by the plight of our brothers and sisters in order to be in order to be empathetic uh, towards that. I think about Jesus as our uh, our empathetic and faithful high priest who was tempted in every way that we were, but found faithful. Like it was necessary for the divine Son of God to uh, to in, for the incarnation to take place, right? Um, so I think that in the, in that same sense, there's this responsibility that we have now you talked about the driving while black. Um, so this is an interesting thing. We're in a, uh, a small group with, um, three or four black couples, a couple Asian couples, a couple white couples. Right. And so it's just a beautiful uh, group. And as we're sitting there talking, um, we talked about the whole, the talk, having the talk. And I shared with them, um, the reality that my oldest son, Liam, takes after his mama with his skin color. So he's very light. And in the summertime, he's going to get a nice tan, but he's going to look like a, like kind of a white beach boy, you know, like he's going to have just that golden, golden tan. That's cool. Uh, from Levi and to Luke, they get darker and darker. So Lucas is like the true Indian baby. And it kind of dawned on me that while all three of my children could be in a car at the same time, at 16, 17, 18, whatever, when they're driving, depending on who's driving and what time of the year it is and how sunny it is outside, if, God forbid, they were to get pulled over, each one may have a different experience. And now navigating through the complexity of that, now my black friends, the guys were like, I never even thought about that. My white friends were like, the talk, I thought we we're going to talk about sex right now. Like, so we, 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 had, this entire, <laughs> we had this entire cultural conversation that uh, ended up happening but then the, that complexity of even for you know uh, the reality of different times of the year and different skin tones and shades and accent or non-accent and and how do you how do you look now here's the interesting that happened the the white um the couple of white dads that were in there they came we sat down we we're watching the, the bulls game or something was on afterwards and we're sitting there talking and he they go man uh joel um and jay i think we got to have to have the talk with our boys I was like, the talk? What do you mean? They're white. And so here's my, my ignorance. They're white. They're good. And she goes, they're good. They're oh, white. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they go, no, man. But what if they're in the same car with your boys? And dude, I, I wow. almost started weeping. I got emotional. Jay got emotional. I just thought, oh, yeah. He goes, I need to teach my white boys the situation and the circumstance so they can be aware of the context wow. and the situation that their minority brothers and sisters in Christ are going to be in. And that was a powerful moment. I don't want to go into fix-it mode because <laughs> I just got done lambasting that. Right. <laughs> but have there been things that you have seen that have been, because that have been helpful for you um, in these conversations, or have there been things that you've seen that everyone thought was helpful, but gosh, that was not helpful at all. Yeah, I I have. So I think I think that the helpful thing is well let me say this I I don't know how to say it so I'm just going to say it I think that you have to you have to genuinely like the people that you're with you have to genuinely be in relationship with people that you enjoy being with it's like if I were to come to Hope Michigan there's no doubt that I'm going to call you and we're going to hang out you know um, because I enjoy our relationship together and out of that relationship we get into these conversations I think that if we go into relationships on the sake of an agenda, 
right, to check off a mark or to say, well, I need to have a couple of black friends and a couple of Indian friends, a couple of Asian friends in order to be culturally, to have some cultural IQ or EQ, whatever you want to call it, intelligence in this area. I've seen that as total failure because one, it's awkward, right? Because you don't necessarily maybe enjoy being around the, those people. Um, but then secondarily, those people are going to be like, man, I'm just your pet project. And nobody wants to be a pet project. That's that's not helpful at all. So the, the first thing that we found is, for me personally, is I've got a group of friends that I like genuinely, we can talk non-theology, non-church, nothing. We'll talk about Jordan or, or LeBron, who's the greatest. Like, like we're, we're talking about just life stuff. We go work out and play basketball. Oh, but, by the way, what's the answer? No, MJ, there's no doubt. Listen, LeBron okay. just broke the, <laughs> the, the um, MJ's uh, scoring record. It took him an extra two years. MJ retired twice. So I don't want to hear anything about this. I mean, okay, we're going to get sidetracked. All right, so your friends can have that conversation. Sorry about that. Yeah. And, 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 then we can, and then we can segue into all these other areas, right? Like we can be invited into that. So I think that's the one thing is to be, to be wary of is going after a relationship for the sake of some pet project that you can just like the task task, you know, checklist, you can just. So let me ask a question about that. I'm going to interrupt you because I, I think that one of the things that I'm, I'm seeing in a lot of churches that are pastored by white dudes, okay, mm-hmm. is this, um, gosh, I'm going to just, again, I'm just going to say this the way I feel it, yep. um, is a shame gets placed onto white pastors if they are not pursuing an ethnically diverse church with an ethnically diverse leadership team with an ethnically diverse worship team and pastoral team, et cetera, like that, uh, regardless of their community in which their church is placed and the people who are actually coming to their church. So like like a guy might be a white dude who's got 250 white people in his church and he's told, why don't you have a black elder? And he's like, I, I don't have a black person in my church. But then he feels shame and he feels shamed um, for the fact that he is not doing that or pursuing that. And then, like you just said, you also don't want to make somebody feel like you're in relationship with them to fill some sort of quota. Yeah. Like how how does uh, a white dude out there thread the needle of that one? Yeah. I mean, talk to a white pastor for a second. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think, uh, man, if you're if you're out there and you're feeling shamed about that and that's your that's your context. I feel bad that you're feeling shamed about that because you're just trying to be faithful in your gospel ministry. Um, and so one, I would say there is no shame for you because you're just trying to be faithful um, in your area. Now, I would say if you are in the Metroplex in Dallas or in Chicago or, you know, and you're in a context that is tremendously diverse, yet your church is tremendously not, I think that begs a question to ask why. And I think that does beg a question to ask theologically, like, where do we land? What do we believe the, 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 the body of Christ should look like? Um, so here's, here's where I would go from a missiology standpoint or a church planting standpoint. You have to reflect the community that you're in and the context that you're in and be unapologetic about that. There is no, there is no shame there. You can't be uh, a leopard, can't be a tiger, right? Like you just, you just have to have to be faithful in your ministry context. Um, I do think that for those that have the ability um, that are in a context that is very multi-ethnic, that is diverse, this is me personally. I don't know, Noel, where you land ecclesiologically on this. We may differ. I personally believe that there is a biblical imperative to pursue a multi-ethnic 
And when I say multi-ethnic, I say multi-ethnic that also includes socioeconomic and transcultural. My buddy Leon Crump, uh, uh, he, he says uh, transcultural. It's important. Those things are important because that's what Paul plans in those uh, situations and in those settings. Um, and so that's my that's my personal belief. And here's the other thing. It takes time. So if you're the guy who feels the conviction today and you're in the city of Chicago and everybody is white and you're like, I've got to figure out how to do this. Don't expect it to happen in six months or even a year. That's setting yourself up for failure. Your church maybe has been around for 20 years, you know, and it's built this culture. It's going to take time, effort. It's going to take consistency, faithfulness. And, and most of all, man, it's going to take prayer. It's going to take lots and lots of prayer. Um, so I don't know if I answered that question or if I tap dance a little bit around it, but uh, I do think your culture matters. Your context matters. So, so talking to you know church planters and pastors for the last couple decades, one of the things that I've often told them is your church has a target, whether you realize it or not. It has a focus, whether you realize it or not. Because a lot of people are like, no, no, we just want to be open to whoever shows up. Give me five minutes in your service. Give me five minutes in your life group recruiting. Give me five minutes in your membership class. And I'm going to tell you who your target is. So just stop saying you don't have a target and just understand what it is and be more um, intentional about that. So, um, and that may be stylistic, that may be cultural, that may be age, that may be all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, in do you think uh, when you talk about your ecclesiology that there there is a a, a mandate to reflect um, the you, the community that you're in? Are you saying that the target ought to be all of those things? So you look at your community. I want all the ages of my community, all the languages, all the ethnicities, all the styles. Are you saying that it goes that far that there's an ecclesiological mandate to reflect your entire community? You, you get where I I'm do. going with that, or, or or is it just to say the best that I can with whom I've got, or is it a sliver of that, or is it to understand that the broader church with all the churches in that community are reflecting that? Like unpack that a little more because I think that to some that can sound like a very utopian ideal that is unrealistic in practice yeah thanks that's a good one and i've got like five minutes i think you, uh, based off the time <laughs> um, you're asking me to do my entire dissertation now in five minutes um that's right well this is called defending your dissertation this, this exactly this is a good this is a good practice for me so here here's what i think i think yes there's a biblical imperative that we have to reflect the community that we're in and i do believe that it's all of those things so i think that the intention of the planting process um, leadership development, uh, preaching, music style, ministry methodology, all of those things should, to the best of our ability, be able to, um, I, I don't want to say cater to, but bring in that context of the community that you're in so that, as Spurgeon talks about, we can be winsome for the sake of the gospel, right? Um, what that does not mean is uniformity for the sake of unity, okay? So what I'm not saying is, Everybody has to look like, act like, be the same, or that your ministry can't have a very targeted, cultural kind of target of, here's who we feel the Lord has called us to be. 
Um, for instance, at Transformation Church, um, my buddy KJ is the worship pastor there. Um, KJ does a brilliant job of staying true to some of his gospel roots that he came out of, but the experience of worship is not going to feel schizophrenic in nature. Like you're not going to be like, oh, here's gospel, and then oh, here's Latino music, and oh, here's some reggae. Like, like he's we we have a culture that we've developed that brings in flavors and styles that is um it matches the context that we're in. I'm going to give a personal here, and this is where um the the theology always I think our theology always has to hit practical, right? Uh, and and the space in between is where the devil plays. I think we can't live in formal theology without hitting in practical theology. I grew up in a context where I went on Saturday to Indian church. It was a it was a homogeneous Indian church. We were all second generation Indian kids. I also went to a primarily white Caucasian church on Sundays. Um, my mom and dad loved Indian church because in Indian church, they got their clothes, their food, their culture, their language, all the things that they lost from India when they might immigrated here, they had in that, in that Indian context. Um, I hated Indian church because I didn't understand any of it. And it created in me this bipolar reality of, in one sense, I could step into what was almost like little India, but then I'd have to go into America the very next day, or like it just created this demarcation. The American church was primarily white, had no idea how to deal with any minorities, let alone an Indian dude who's from Hyderabad, you know? And so now I'm like, I'm just going to hang out with the black kids and the Latino kids because that's the, that's the closest thing to my context. So so it was a, so there's a personal thing where I just wonder, and I think what Paul does in planting churches in the New Testament is that to some sense, we have to lay down our preferences for the sake of unity in diversity. That's where I go to the Trinitarian thing. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. One in essence, distinct in person. I mean, in um, in in their function. So I just think that that's so, so important that we understand that. Even the, the, the nature of the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Distinct in content, unified in theme, in anticipation of Jesus, um, or the reality of Jesus's arrival. So uh, all of these things, these biblical narratives, these biblical themes point to uh, unity in diversity, not unity in uniformity. So uh, we could probably talk for another two hours, but uh, probably shouldn't. <laughs> so uh, just, <laughs> just, but I appreciate you a ton. Uh, appreciate you and your wife and your beautiful, crazy children. And, uh, and just so thankful for you and all your, your gospel work. Can't wait to see if your uh, dissertation turns into a book because I suspect it it should um, it, um, and so I'm um, just thrilled to have it. so thank you so much for being appreciate here. it man this was an honor love it